Kashish, welcome to the Data Chaos Podcast. It is great to have you here. I am thrilled to be talking to you today. Um, we are not only customers of High Touch, but we are also fans of High Touch over at Propel. And I think this is going to be a great conversation. Hey, Tyler. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's great to have you here. So uh, big week for you this week, coming off a $38 million fundraise. That's amazing news, especially in this climate today. Thanks, Tyler. I mean, the part that we're really excited about is actually the new identity resolution product that we launched. Uh, uh, fundraise is always good, but, you know, those are more like, you know, those are less important metrics than really what we're building for our customers. Uh, so absolutely super to talk about that a little bit more. Without a doubt, no, the customer-centric view is is where it's at, right? That's why we're doing this to begin with. So it's a, definitely a lot of fun there. So let's talk a little bit. Something we talked about in our intro call was entropy and chaos in customer data. What have you seen in your career specifically at High Touch since you deal with data, a lot of data? Why is there so much entropy? Why is it so chaotic out there for everybody? Yeah, it's because um, enterprises are complex. So there's a saying that we have, um, which is everyone is trying to build their customer 360, their full view of their customer journey, that kind of stuff in their business. And everyone that is realistic will realize that's never going to happen. There is no such thing as a customer 360. You're only going to get to 320 or 350, but there's, you're, you're never going to have the full view of the customer because of how complex the journey is. Um, and we've been fortunate enough to work with some of the largest brands. And when you look at bigger and bigger companies, they actually have multiple products, multiple websites, multiple mobile apps. And so it's very difficult for them to track their user profiles across all of those. Um, and so actually, like folks will say like data chaos or data entropy is a bad thing. I don't think it's a bad thing. I think that's just how the world works. Um, it's a very normal thing. Exactly. It's a normal thing. And in fact, like it's like in science, right? You can't say entropy is solvable. Entropy is just part of life. Part of life. Uh, and I think that's the and same it's up thing. to us. No, I agree. I think it's up to us to help solve that, right? So as High Touch specifically, you started off as reverse ETL. That's right. Um, that, that reverse ETL you have now over 200 connectors across all of that. And the biggest thing you were trying to do is take all of that data, put it to where customers need it. Mm -hmm. And then now you're kind of helping them to tame that chaos that exists in all of that data. Talk a little bit more of those 200 connectors. That had to be a huge amount of engineering effort to build and maintain. Can we can we dig into that a little bit more? Yeah, sure. Uh, so just context for uh, the audience. HiTouch is, well, we started in 2020 as a reverse ETL platform. So a very simple way to get data from any database into any SaaS tool. All you do is you give us a SQL query. Uh, we pull the results of that SQL query, and then we help you map the columns in your SQL query to the columns in your SaaS tool, and we will get the data there. And so we'll run all of the API calls, retries, rate limits, everything to get that data into your different SaaS tool. And it could be a Salesforce, a Marketo. It could be a Facebook or Google ad tool. It could be like an email tool, like, um, like Iterable or Braze, really any SaaS tool that you have in your business. And the whole idea, the, the vision, like the beauty of it was, if I update my SQL query, all of my SaaS tools should update with that new definition. So let's say I tweak the definition of um, customer propensity score. I can now update all my SaaS tools with that new definition immediately in, in like laser fast time with no extra engineering effort on my part. So that's why it was so exciting for the market because they were really excited about being able to use their data warehouse as the central control plane for all their different SaaS vendors across their business, of which 
we now have so many SaaS vendors that becomes more critical over time. Um, that's what we started with. And you're totally right. We had um, in that journey, we've now built exactly like 220 connectors, um, all destination connectors um, that help our customers sync data to their SaaS tools. Um, and the reason we were able to do this is because in the early days, we had really strong abstraction frameworks for our developers to build integrations. So I think one thing that Hightouch has um, as just a leg up against other folks in the market is really how much we've invested in our frameworks. And um, like, I'll just give you a couple of examples of that. Um, we have what we call an ORM framework. So ORM is object relationship model. And we build most of our destinations under this framework. So our engineers are actually only writing a few functions um, in, in that framework. And then many things are done for them. So the actual sync logic is done, retries is done, dead letter queue is done for them. Um, they, we generate the UI automatically for every destination that falls under this framework. And the reason we're able to do that is because Sean, one of our first front engineer in the early days, he actually built this thing that we created internally. It's called FormKit. The idea is that our developer puts in to a JSON the different attributes of this destination and what they need in the front end. And then the front end is automatically generated in a very modular way. So the reason we can build 220 destinations is because the, a very small subset of those destinations actually require a front end. And almost none of them require a sync engine because the sync engine is shared. So I think like we got quite lucky and I wouldn't say it's luck. I would say it's really credit goes to our, um, our CTO, Josh, and then our architect, Kevin Lin, for really building those incredible frameworks in the early days. It's hard engineering there, definitely, without a doubt. Let's, um, so if you think about all of those in the beginning, did you ever track any metrics of how long it would take the team to go from, say, like, okay, you've got the, the first 10 connectors to the second cohort of another 20 to 50. And were, were you ever looking at those metrics and saying, okay, how is this getting better and better and faster for time to market for a new connector? Um, we didn't do a good job of tracking it, but I can tell you that in the early days when you could kind of get away with shipping any kind of code, um, it would sometimes take us like a day or two per connector. Um, then we got much more rigorous. We had enterprise customers. We had to have everything locked tight. It became a week or so um, per destination. And then as our frameworks improved, um, we actually started being able to ship fast again. Um, but it really depends, right? Because there's destinations like NetSuite or SAP that might take you multiple months to develop. Other ones might take you only a couple of days. And so it just really depends. Um, and that's actually the interesting part of like, data, which is that some types of um, tools accept data in like a very clear format in a very easy way. And others might be completely abstract. They might just be a database in themselves, uh, like NetSuite is, which is why it takes so much more effort to sync data to NetSuite. Do you think it was harder with some of those legacy products? Like I look at NetSuite and an SAP. I mean, yes, they're still out there, but they're probably not as modern as a number of the other you yeah. know, uh, pieces that you support there. Were those always like more difficult to do just because of the, the legacy nature of them? Yes, exactly. Um, and oftentimes it's also correlated with like how on-prem these are or yeah. how secure they are. So authing into NetSuite, there's like a double step auth that you have to do. Um, so it doesn't fit under our normal auth framework. Um, and so I don't want to blame that it was just legacy software. It's also sometimes that the security need for those kinds of softwares is just really high. Vastly different. Yeah. Definitely very different there. I could see that. Super interesting. And so with those abstractions, or it's a big investment, right? So there's an investment that Hightouch had to make from an engineering perspective into those abstractions. Obviously, you could have 
just said, hey, we're just going to churn these things out and 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 not worry about it. Um, maybe take a a sort of less you know architectural or you know mm-hmm. hardcore engineering approach to this. But you said those abstractions. I think at one point we talked have helped out in a number of ways beyond just adding additional connectors. Um, how else have those abstractions sort of impacted what you can do and build at at high touch internally, obviously? Yeah, so um, this goes, it's actually tied to both abstraction and engineering culture. Mm-hmm. But a lot of engineering teams back away from like building kind of like the end vision. They want to incrementally build towards that. They want to build the MVP, which is really smart, right? You want to ship for speed. Um, but in certain instances, the customer is best served by kind of like the, the entire vision. The For us, in that in, in this case, it was to build a fully um, schema agnostic product. So in most products, when you use them, you have to kind of send that product to your data in that product format. And you have to constrain your data to their format. That's like the most common paradigm in SaaS. Um, we wanted to build something that was completely schema agnostic because every single customer we work with is very different from each other. And so in the early days, folks said, you can't build a product that works for B2B teams as well as B2C teams. Their data looks really different. B2C people have users, B2B people have companies with users underneath. Um, and so that's why we built a schema agnostic product since day one. Um, and like, I can kind of sh- show you a little bit of what that looks like, but you'll, you'll see that it's really difficult to imagine in advance what something like this would be. Um, but over time, it becomes more and more clear that we need something like this. So like, just to quickly show you, um, like being able to give our users these nice frameworks, like your tables might be users, contacts, and orders. Someone else might be companies, um, SaaS contracts, and like something else, right? So the, the model in every single company is completely different. And it's actually not possible, in my opinion, for SaaS tools to follow a very strict data framework anymore. I think they need to be somewhat schemaless. Um, And I think that's one of the trade-offs that we made in the early days. Um, We said, we're going to build a sync engine, but it's going to be fully schema agnostic. So you bring your warehouse schema to us, and then you bring your SaaS schema to us as well. So we'll pull from Salesforce. What is the table in Salesforce that we're syncing to? We'll pull from your warehouse the same thing, and we'll help you match those up together. Um, And then eventually we launched a product for um, business users to build these queries without writing SQL. And the way to do that is we gave them a schema builder as well, where they could tie together the join columns between different tables, which would instruct our query builder how to turn their visual queries into SQL. Um, and so effectively, we built, we built a semantic layer. We weren't calling it that, uh, but we built a semantic layer way back in 2021. Um, tons of customers are on this, and that's exactly why their IC marketers are able to build visual queries in our product, because the semantic layer informs our query builder on how to run those queries in the warehouse. Um, and yeah, so that so was one I of the things where folks said that we were crazy and that we were like, <laughs> taking on too much engineering burden and this just doesn't make sense to build such a complex product when you're not even sure that po- folks will use it. But we had really high certainty that marketers needed this. We had talked to so many of them that we invested the resources really upfront to build it the right way. But a, probably an easy way to inform yourselves and whether or not customers are going to use it is look at the engineering work that a customer would have to do if you didn't support this. So if you weren't able to actually give them this, this sort of, you know, Holy grail of coming to saying, Hey, bring us whatever you bring your schemas. We don't care. Bring us whatever you want. What would that conversation look like? If you said, well, here's what we support. 
that's honestly a great point. So like um, another thing to think about is a lot of the companies that don't have that, they end up telling their customers, you can't POC this. We're going to sell you 100 hours of professional services. We're going to help you implement this. We're going to hold your hand. And as a result, they're only able to serve the biggest companies in the world. And their software is pigeonholed really to only serve companies that can pay them a lot of money, um, which actually doesn't democratize access to this kind of infrastructure, right? It only builds it for the biggest companies. And so being able to provide this kind of schema agnostic infrastructure where customers can themselves, without talking to us, instruct our product on what schema to have, um, it opens up the gates for smaller companies to have access to this great infrastructure that otherwise you'd have to have like hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue to be able to afford. Um, So that's what excites us as founders. It's like, you know, like, of course we want to make visual querying available for marketers, but sometimes even data people don't want to write a SQL query. It might take them like an hour to write the query when you could just kind of point and click, boom, it's done. And we've seen that a lot. Like we've surprisingly seen really smart data people want to use our visual audience builder and succeed in using it because it's just easier than writing the query themselves. Um, yeah, that had to be amazing. Cool. Like, I was not say no. Like, it had to be amazing. Like, the first time you put it in the hands of a, of a customer, and to watch them say, "Well, I wait. I don't have to do DBT on this. Wait, I don't have to put some sort of intermediary transformation in between my system and your mm-hmm. system in order to gain all of the benefit of high touch." You're just like, "No, no. Just send us the data." I mean, that had to be some magic there. Exactly. Yeah, and like people just felt unblocked. Like, um, I think um, people are now getting tired of being really caught up in how to do things the right way. Like, how should I do this in the right way for the next 10 years? Versus I just need to get the thing done. If it works, I'll optimize it later. Um, and so oftentimes they really enjoy that. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be building DBT models out of these things. Oftentimes we should. Sometimes you want to write it to memory. That way, when you run the query next time, it'll be much faster, right? So for certain use cases, you actually do want to modularize it. You want to write it to memory. You want to index it. And there are reasons why we should be building models. But we should be building models when we want to reuse something. Yeah. Not when we want to try it one time, see if it works. And if it does work, then we'll build a model, right? It's like, it's just a different mentality of like, how quickly do you want to get things done? Um, and how like perfect do you want to be on, on, on step one? No, absolutely. I think that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you do a lot with Snowflake. Let's talk a little bit about that ecosystem. Um, I know you're just recently at the 2023 uh, Snowflake Summit. You spoke out there. Um, what what excites you specifically in conjunction with High Touch and Snowflake that you can do for your customers or their customers and yours, which are joint customers in this case? Uh, the list is so long. Um, I'll give <laughs> like the yeah. maybe the more interesting idea here, which is that. Snowflake is really on track to become the operational center of a business, not just for analytics queries. So reverse ETL five years ago would not have made that much sense because your query would run overnight, right? If you run your query once a day, your data is getting synced once a day, which means you're running suppressions on your users for their ad campaigns once a day. Um, Because Snowflake has made it so easy to run these queries faster without doing tons of engineering work to optimize those queries, you can now actually run your suppression campaign every hour. It's pretty cheap. It runs very efficiently. The engineering work needed to run that kind of operation is really low. So the combination of like a Fivetrans, Snowflake, and high touch actually gets you a data stack that functionally can support many operational parts of your business. Um, and so when I think about what excites me, um, there's all these like business things I could say like, oh, the more people that use Snowflake, the more people that will be ready to do reverse ETL. Like that's obviously true for our business. 
But when I think as an engineer, it's the fact that running queries faster and in real time is becoming easier for everyone. Um, And we're able to abstract so many things away from our engineers. Like, do we need to write an index on this? Um, Like, should we worry about B trees? Like all these things that you'd have to worry about in the past. Um, I feel like the same type of like tooling that used to be created for developers 10 years ago, all the developer tools came up. Like we're now getting those for data people. Um, And so the infrastructure layer is actually just a lot easier to manage now. And so that's what excites me. Um, One thing I see happening pretty soon is um, more streaming in and out of Snowflake. Mm -hmm. And once we can get streaming, like I think we can really think of how do we use Snowflake as like obviously not a Kafka replacement, but in, in some ways, like can we actually just read and write from Snowflake immediately? Dynamic tables, for example, um, are, are just like, like I want to know how they work and if they are going to be able to work as fast as, as we're hoping. But that's just going to be an incredible way to do diffs in Snowflake. Yep. Yeah, we see that as one of those, the, the kind of like, big announcements this year to come out is, is dynamic tables. I know those have been out for a little while, but I, they're starting to get a lot of adoption, a lot of traction. Now we're seeing a lot of noise out there. Um, you know, the different posts and medium and everything else, people are talking about them. We're looking forward to kicking the tires on those as well. I think they're going to unlock a lot of additional use cases that previously you would have to run services for in order to accomplish, which is additional cost and pager duty schedules and everything else like that, that you can now just do, uh, inside of snowflake. Do you know like any examples of pe- folks that are c- successful with dynamic tables and like what they're doing with it? We've not seen it yet. I've only seen the demos. Um, yeah. We're we we're super interested in trying them ourselves. So today we we're very event driven architecture. Uh, this is at Propel, and mm-hmm. all of our events are flowing um, you know, through a Kinesis data firehose into Snowpipe, landing inside of a Snowflake. But then we're using DBT, which is now running in a Fargate container. Mm-hmm. To do all the transformation and I would say, uh, you know, decoration enhancement of those events. And then that lands in another table inside of, of Snowflake. What we want to do is we want to cut out having to run that additional container and that additional logic that we have to maintain and see if we can transfer all of that into Snowflake and run it in there in the form of a dynamic table. That's cool. Wow, that's going to be awesome. We're yeah, hoping I mean, that's going to cut down on a lot after you cut down on the spin, but also just cut down on the time for that data to then be available because we also use that data back in the propel product mm-hmm. um, for a number of visualizations and insights and product insights uh, that are built into our console. Yeah. Yeah. This concept of like, um, I mean, you know, like it's an age old concept, right? Like we've always thought about like how do we incrementally run our queries? Yeah. Um, but like, I think, yeah, I'm just quite excited to see how this pans out for the market. Um, we've also had a, like, a lot of interest in just kind of writing back data to Snowflake as well. So a lot of folks will say like, hey, like the models I built in high touch or this kind of um, like this modeling layer that you've given me. Again, we're, we're not a modeling layer. We, we very much still use DBT as the modeling layer for all of our customers if we can. Um, but when we think about the fact that people are getting insights on their customers in high touch, and sometimes they'll create traits on their customers, like show me the total orders from this customer. They'll run the aggregation in high touch in the visual audience builder. And then they'll say, man, I wish I could write this back to my warehouse. And so we provide that, right? Um, and so in some ways, like we're actually helping write back good data that is like less chaotic to the Snowflake instance. Um, and one thing I think about all the time is that that's actually the risk in becoming a MarTech vendor for us. Because if we only support marketing, um, 
other folks in the company might want that table too. They might want the orders over time table per customer to use for other things. And so it's really important for like at least data products to think about any insight that we gather, how can we write that back in a way that's now usable for the analytics team or the attribution team or the data science team? No, that's a great point there because there is, you're, you're running this job that's providing value. Um, and most of the times, just because it's providing value to a, say, the marketing team, there's also a ton of value that could be gleaned, maybe even by your customer as well, um, that could use that value as well. And so a bunch of other teams, that's sort of like you talked about democratizing data. It's, it's you know, that access is how does everyone get access to it, but get access to it in a safe and secure manner. Yeah. Um, I like the idea of, of writing things back. Let's talk about some of your customers. You've got a ton of big logos out there that are using high touch. Um, anyone's in particular that you have helped solve some really sort of hairy engineering problems that have now just gotten a much easier for them uh, now that they've, they've used high touch. Um, yeah. So like, um, One thing, I mean, we, we, so we see all the time, um, there's a lot of noise in the market that says buy this product or buy that product. And then there's all these like enterprise evaluation decisions, right? Like I have to go through a 12 month decision process for what to buy. Um, I like thinking about that a little bit less, but unfortunately that is what a lot of our customers face. It's not that they have an engineering problem to solve and then they can just go solve it and make things work within their business. Oftentimes it's going through much lengthier sales processes, having to talk to like multiple different vendors, et cetera. And so one example I can share is um, Warner Music was evaluating a CDP for three years in a row. And fundamentally, the reason they didn't want to buy a CDP is because they felt that we have a CDP, we have Snowflake, we have our data in there. I've already done stitching of my user profiles in Snowflake. I know what my user data looks like. I even have Spotify data in Snowflake. So why would I buy a CDP and then send my data there? And I've actually like over time, what we've realized by talking to tons of these kinds of like bigger companies is that that's the reason why CDPs, like the general customer data platforms didn't take off in the early days. Um, and even now are not really taking off. It's because folks are not excited about having two sources of truth, their data warehouse, as well as their CDP. Um, and they're also not excited about giving all the data away to a CDP. Um, and that was the original reason why we started high touch. It was to, make it possible to just use your data warehouse as your CDP because you already have the data in there. And that's kind of like what worked really well at both Warner Music and PetSmart. Um, they both had a really good understanding of their customer and a pretty solid customer 360. Um, they were like, I think like the thing that these two teams did really well is they didn't wait for perfect data in order to get work done. Um, they waited for data that was good enough then shared it with the marketing team and at least drove the business forward. And that's why you see them like really building their e-com business faster than most brands um, because they were able to get unblocked on the data side pretty fast. Um, and so the kinds of engineering problems we help them with is things like in the early days, simply I want to run hundreds of campaigns to my ads tools. I know exactly what they should look like. And we gave them a way to auto-generate these syncs. So just using YAML and JSON, you can very simply instruct HighTouch to create syncs to different ad tools. Um, and it could be to, let's say you're Warner Music, you support 4,000 artists. So you have 4,000 different ad accounts with different ad budgets. You want to be able to off all those different ad accounts and then send different data and different syncs of data to those ad accounts. So you need to be able to instruct HighTouch in a very programmatic way. Um, and so we built like a programmatic way for them to instruct HighTouch. 
We built them the data pipelines that go to all these ad syncs. And then we gave the marketers a UI to be able to build um, customer segmentation. So it was like very many different problems. Um, I think maybe the easiest way to like describe this and make this succinct is if like a really good data person wants to be spending their time um, building kind of like foundational models for their company, like what is a user, what is revenue, what is an order, and less time writing one-off queries for the marketing team. And so we help them set up this audience builder to give to their business team that allows them to not worry about the one-off queries and then spend more time on the core work. Um, and so that was really like the biggest unlock in the early days, especially like in 2021, where now Warner is able to s- spend all their time doing, for example, like identity resolution, stitching of Spotify data, stitching of like Eventbrite data, all of these things in-house, um, and then let their marketers run queries on those things using high touch. So it's interesting to think you went into these, some of these companies and they had their data in Snowflake or, or different places and they felt like they felt... <laughs> They had built CDP themselves in a, yep. in a sense. What was when you when you go into a, a situation like that? What's the like? You're you're doing a you're, you're doing a replace. You're not maybe not doing a full replace, but you're 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 saying, hey, High Touch is going to give you you know, better identity resolution. It's going to give you a better 360 view. It's going to give you all of these things. But what I'm always curious about when you come in, like. What was the amount of engineering resources and infrastructure that these folks were having to run to build their CDP? It, it had mm. to be pretty extensive. It wasn't something that it was that was you know probably took years to build. And you're coming in there and you're saying, "Well, High Touch, we can do all this for you now." Yeah, um, you know, I have to be very honest. Um, the folks that were building data pipelines, they were not building crazy infrastructure. They were using like Airflow jobs, um, any sort of like orchestration type, like. Just hosting pipelines in AWS and hitting them once in a while, like Lambda functions. Um, so it's quite interesting. Like you would expect that they did tons of engineering infrastructure work, and yes, that is true at like the biggest companies, and I can't name them by name, but they did build a true CDP in-house, right? They built an audience builder, um, segmentation, something very um, reliable and consistent. Um, for those, it usually took two years, and like an engineering team of at least ten people. Um, that's like the standard, I would say. Um, but for the majority of companies, they actually said, hey, you know what? We don't have those engineering resources, so we're not going to build it. We're just going to build pipelines. Um, we're going to maintain them and update them like every month because they're going to break. But we're just going to kind of like do the 80-20 of just getting the pipelines. Um, and so that was like most of the companies that we've worked with. We go in and we find that they have all these pipelines they don't want to maintain. Um, APIs are updating downstream and they have to continue updating these pipelines. Marketer might ask for a new column and now suddenly have to add more code to be able to sync that new column. Um, and it was just a ton of ad hoc engineering work rather than a big platform that they built once once and for all. Um, and that's actually why a lot of the folks said, hey, like, we want to bring in someone to take this work off our plate because it's not the building that's hard. It's the maintaining um, and the reliability. Yeah. And what if it breaks? I have no idea that it broke until my marketer told me, dude, my campaign's not running. What's happening here? Um, so they'd so essentially working. get it part of the way there. And so it's like you said, 80, 20. So they're, they're maybe 75, 80% of the way there. It's doing its job, but it's not quite, it's, it's not quite, you know, fulfilling the promise of a, of a, of a 360 um, full yeah. identity resolution. And then high touch comes in and says, Hey, look, we can give this to you with the data you have not requiring necessarily new engineering resources, no new pager duty schedules. Don't worry about the reliability, the resiliency, 
We've exactly. got all of that. And by the way, now you're at full 360. Exactly. Yeah. And like um, the full 360 piece is, again, not a promise that anyone should be making and nor are we. Um, so we just launched this product on Wednesday. It's called Customer 360 Toolkit. Um, but that's really like a wrapper for the actual product that we're starting with, which is identity resolution. Um, and that is something that will help people get closer to Customer 360. It's not nearly going to get you the full Customer 360. But the whole idea is that you have user rows in your table for your mobile app. Then you have it also for your table for your web app. Then you have the anonymous users for your website. Uh, and then you might have all the other things, like maybe you get data from partners for transaction data. You get data from your brick and mortar source for transaction data. And so you might have like five or six different places that are like user tables. And you might even have tons more if you're unlucky, right? So these are the kinds of problems most of our businesses face, which is that they don't have a unified ID for what is a customer. I can't just say unified ID number 126, show me all the data I have on this customer. And that's what identity resolution does. It stitches together all these different tables. We let you instruct us on like which tables have which data and how do you want them to join. And we build together a unified profile of I will be able to show across anonymous browsing history and logged in browsing history, one unified profile of the customer for like one and with one unique ID. Um, and that's what we build. We build like that canonical model for our customers and we write it back to their warehouse. Um, and that helps them get closer to customer 360. Um, and is this launched for all warehouses or specifically for Snowflake first? Yeah, so it's actually launched for Snowflake and Databricks um, okay. both. And we're working on rolling it out for the other warehouses as well. Um, and it works natively in both of those applications. So the thing that's really awesome is that um, there's no data that really has to flow to high touch. Um, we can build you this canonical model in your warehouse without seeing any of that data. And we don't want to see that data. We don't want you to have to go through large infosec hurdles in order to be able to build your user model. Um, and so we built it in really like a way, not for business users, but for data folks to build this canonical model um, and on their warehouse without any sort of infrastructure concern. Nice. Now, are you, did you get access to the Snowpark container services? Is that running in, in, in there now or is it running more as a native app? Um, this one's more like a native app. Okay. Um, we're not yet looking at containers, but we have seen some companies super successful on it. And honestly, like a huge shout out to the Snowflake team. When they launched the container services, uh, we were super impressed. Uh, it's okay. really fully like, any sort of Kubernetes container. Like it just like really seems like it should work. So we're going to probably test it out at some point and just see what it looks like just to know. Um, but that was honestly a very impressive launch for Snowflake. Yeah. I mean, definitely from my perspective at the you know, the 23 summit, that was the most impressive piece to me. Um, they talked a ton about bringing, you know, apps to the data versus data to the apps. They're, you know, they're reversing that. Um, yeah. Just like, you know, y'all reverse the ETL. Um, and like, you know, they've got the two ways to do that. They're bringing it through native apps, but then now, now they're actually making it, uh, I think, even more robust by giving you that full container so a company can come in and, and build their software directly into a container like a Kubernetes cluster ship that right alongside uh, the existing you know, customer's implementation yeah. and not have to deal with all of the security implications. It's, it's sort of like, great, maybe no more SOC 2. That would be really nice. Exactly, yeah. You know, and I think, um, to be honest, we've shared this vision with them for a very long time, since the very early days. Like One thing we saw happening was that it, it goes exactly back to the schema agnostic piece that I mentioned before. Um, it's that you want your software to be built 
based on what your data looks like. You don't want your data to have to like conform to the constraints of your software. And so that's why we're like super pumped about data apps and this this concept of bringing the app to the data. Um, I do feel like the reason why there's so much extra work and unnecessary work in in, in, in SaaS is because of the, all these integration problems. Um, and over time, we might actually see some of these integration problems go away. So in the very early days, we shared this vision with Snowflake. We said, hey, like, what if you didn't have to worry about how data gets into, into Salesforce or into any of your other SaaS tools? Because Hightouch would just provide the abstraction layer for you. Um, and we're very excited to continue being part of that vision with them. Um, we don't have to necessarily like download the data from Snowflake and get it into Salesforce over time. If Salesforce and other companies build a better app layer that integrates with the data, we can just be the translation, right? We can help transform yeah. that data, provide the like, like N of over 300 um, example cases of how this data should be transformed. Um, and we can become the logic layer instead. We don't actually need to be like ETL specifically, right? So I think um, it's a net benefit for the whole market that we're having to worry less about like where is the data and more just on how are we using it. Um, because you become the glue, right? So you're the, you're the glue between these pieces and a large amount what you do, especially with the, uh, the new feature launch identity resolution is that data is writing right back into that customer's snowflake. Yep. And so again, you talked about, you're not having to move that data around anymore. You're giving it all of the richness, uh, transformations that are needed. And then it's right there available for them. Exactly. And then now I'm assuming with dynamic tables, it's going to be available possibly even faster and continuously updating. And so now you can start, you know, layering on sort of the snow park streams. And there's, there's a whole bunch of, I think, exciting opportunities to just continue to make that better as those apps are getting closer and closer to the data and are able to do more with it. I totally agree. Um, and like one thing we should think about too is it's not just Snowflake, right? Like Snowflake will yeah. build us and I'm sure other folks will have to build it too. Um, and I'm sure if they become big enough that the SaaS teams, SaaS companies will also have to conform to like kind of these new standards. Um, that's exciting. Like you need someone in the market to kind of push everyone forward. Um, I feel like right now that's happening and we're seeing that like day by day or month by month. Um, and in like three or four years, this will just seem obvious and people will be used to this kind of new architecture. Yeah, I think I'm I'm focusing on Snowflake a little bit too much right now and, and fanboying too much because we were just there yesterday filming our uh, Powered by Snowflake uh, video, which I, I saw that, yeah. the High Touch one not too long ago. Uh, you, got, you guys did one as well, which uh, I was showing everybody in, inside the team today to, to go out and watch that. And so oh, cool. I'm kind of like, you know, still coming off that the 2023 summit of, of excitement there and, and seeing a lot of the opportunity. And then you go, you know, you actually go on site and, and start recording a video with them. And you're just like, okay, this ecosystem is amazing. But I agree also, we can't ignore the Databricks. Uh, you know, we can't ignore a bunch of the other, you know, warehouses out there. There, mm -hmm. um, you know, yes, they've got eight thousand plus customers, but there's a lot of uh, a lot of companies in the world. So, yeah, we gotta we gotta move beyond that. Look yeah, at some and other I, again, I think it just encourages innovation for everyone. And I feel like we've like not I don't know how to say this without bragging, but I feel like we've sort of done that for the market as well, um, where tons of folks have now started building reverse ETL. So people ask us all the time, right? Are you worried the SaaS vendors are going to build reverse ETL? Are you worried that your competitors are going to build reverse ETL? Um, and there's maybe like, before there were like two companies that called themselves reverse ETL. Now there's over 10. Um, and so, and for that reason, I feel like we've also really pushed the market to work in this way. Um, and we're proud of that. Um, I think you actually want folks to copy you because it shows the market that there was a good reason to copy. 
it actually admits to the market and to other technologists that there is a right way to do this. And the whole rest of the vendors have kind of accepted the right way to do this. Um, and so I hope that over time, like we even think of APIs not as ways to transfer data, but APIs are just ways to instruct tools to do different things. Like I might want to run my campaign using the API, but if I want to get the user data in there, I think of more like ETL. So one thing I was curious about when you started off with the reverse ETL, customers are are coming to you and and trusting that the data is going to move where it moves. It's going to, you know, the number of records, there's, there's insight that has to be available for that data when those jobs are taking place. Tell me a little bit about what were the early, early day customer demands of insights that you had to give back to them and was that sort of, was that core of the initial product design? Was it something that came later? Because obviously I'm trusting you with my data. I'm wanting you to move my data from my, my, uh, my production Postgres mm-hmm. over here into Snowflake. I'm going to have questions like, how long did it take? Uh, yeah. How many rows got moved? So some sort of insights there. Can you tell me a little bit about, I mean, obviously I, I come from the world of customer facing analytics. So I'm very curious what your own journey was uh, there at High Touch. Um, yeah. So we had a very strong perspective literally day one, that we didn't want to build a black box. So one thing that we've struggled with with many other SaaS tools that we've used is that it's so difficult to debug what's going on. And you have to reach out to their support team to figure out what's going on. And to know just simple things like how many of my roles were rejected versus accepted, you have to go talk to someone or you may never know. Um, And so that was really frustrating for us. Um, In the early days, folks said, hey, I'm not going to use your product because I have all these things that I could build in-house that will give me more visibility and more certainty that the thing is working. And so we got that full list of them from them. It was like 20 different things. And we just built all of them. We said, you know what? If that's what it takes, in six months, I can build every single one of these and give you a perfectly in-house-like experience, but via SaaS. Um, and so we were very strongly against between black box. And in our UI, all these, exactly what you described, like how many rows were synced, um, all this stuff was available in our UI. Later on in the company lifecycle, we started actually writing back those metrics to the warehouse so people can run their own queries on it. But since day one, we've always had it. And let me just tell you how deep we go. So we'll show you, here's how many rows were in the query. Here's how many are changed or added that are net new that were not there before since the last run. Um, for everything that's changed or added, we're going to run the sync now. In the sync step, you can see, here's how many rows we're trying to sync. Um, here's the HTTP request we're making per row. Here's the return from the SaaS API. Is it, is it, like, was it 200 or, or not? Um, and the exact like JSON response from the API. So you can see like every single row you send, what the diff was, um, why the SAS API is returning. You can see on aggregate, which types of errors are coming the most often. So you're getting an email malformatted error most often in the sync. That means your email probably format is not constrained properly. In your SQL query, you can probably fix that. And then we'll even show you that like, um, here's the rows that are rejected. They'll run next query run. That could be in five minutes, that could be next hour, but they'll run again. And then they'll get rejected again, they'll run again. So you can see like literally the waterfall, like exactly what's happening with your data. Um, you'll get alerts in Slack if something gets yeah. messed up or in pager duty. And so because we gave people that visibility, the question of, oh, I could build this in-house better, just completely vanished. Um, and, and that's really like in 2021, why we were like really capturing the market faster than other folks. Um, it's because of developer experience. And it just, it gives them that trust. Uh, it was a big thing that we saw during our time at Twilio when we built the Voice Insights products is folks would build these exceptionally, you know, these these 
real-time voice workloads on us in the form of call centers or mm-hmm. you know chatbots or anything else like that. But they had to understand what was happening. They had to understand when things were failing or when things were going right or how long calls were taking. And without those insights, we had customers coming to us saying like, hey, we're flying blind. We know that you are creating calls for us. But without us having that the level of visibility we yeah. need, we don't feel comfortable in expanding on the platform or bringing new workloads on here. And we found for us, it was really about retention and trust that we were able to then build and garner with those customers by giving them access to that data. And they could understand when how well things were performing. They could understand why something broke when it broke. They would know, was it, hey, did this something Twilio did? Or was it something we had a network issue? Yeah. Or was it a, somebody closed the browser tab? There were all these things. And once they had that visibility, which I'm sure is the same for you, they become more and more comfortable to continue to bring you workloads because they know that high touch is going to do the right thing, that high touch is going to expose the correct data to understand the performance of what they're trying to get done to solve their larger use case. Yeah, exactly. And I think like, it's like what we were talking about in the beginning, like how long does it take to ship a destination? Um, Folks want to know that if this is generally available, not in beta, that I can trust this thing with my job, right? Because we are in their production data pipelines that are oftentimes powering production use cases like ERPs um, or their email automation. If anything goes wrong and it's our fault, that would be disastrous and we would actually be quite upset with ourselves, right? Um, And so that's why we have all of these different fail-safes built into the system. Um, For example, let's say an engineer ships... um, uh, some some update to the system. We have all these different fail-safes built in so that it doesn't affect any of the running syncs. Um, that even before it syncs like retry or like the next sync runs, um, that only the new code only ships if it works properly. Like, so all these testing frameworks we have to make sure that people's syncs can't get broken um, and that they can't accidentally send an email twice. Uh, because we have seen like tools in the past that send an email twice really, really struggle to keep their customers. Um, because that's just just like one of the worst things you can do. So anyways, like there's, I think like we've heard the horror stories enough that we really cared about consistency here. And because like some of the brands we work with might be sending like hundreds of millions of data points per day, um, sometimes billions per, per week, um, we, we just have to make sure that when we sell distrust, it's not just something on paper. Um, it's like really battle tested. It's got to be real and 100% backed up. No, I love that. Um, you mentioned horror stories. Uh, question I always like to ask here is any, you've been around data a lot. You've obviously dealt with a ton of data. You've seen the good, the bad, the ugly, the chaotic. What about the biggest regret? Any big regrets around data that sort of stand out to you that you're like, ah, wish we hadn't done that or wish maybe you hadn't done that, but something around those natures that, you know, you can share with the, the listeners. Interesting. Well, as a company, and again, I don't know if it's a regret. It's more like a, um, we launched this identity resolution product this week, right? Um, We frankly should have launched it sooner. Um, And many of our customers were telling us, hey, we need this thing. Um, So it took us a while to kind of, I think generally our company does a great job of taking the customer feedback and acting on it. But here we were like, huh, maybe we should stick to our principles of being a data activation company. So we think we should just be sending data from A to B, segmenting it, helping people understand it, but we were not going to build models for them. That's something that should be done in DBT. It's something that should be done in SQL. 
Um, and we kept having this framework. Part of the reason we had that perspective is because we didn't want to provide a cookie cutter solution. And we didn't feel comfortable providing this kind of abstract solution that would work for any business um, because we didn't know if it was possible. We like, just genuinely did not know if we, it was even physically possible to make this happen. Um, so we, we shied away from it and we didn't do the discovery for quite a while until the requests really added up. Then we did the discovery and we said, you know what? I think we can build this. It's going to be tough, but we're going to build it in an abstract way that's going to work for like all types of businesses. Shipped it. And now we feel great about it. But the overwhelmingly positive customer feedback that we get after shipping it tells us that we're late and we should have done it sooner and that we shouldn't really have shied away from doing transformations for companies because we're not providing an abstract transformation product. We're just providing a transformation product that does one specific use case that almost every single business in the world has to do at some point in their life cycle. So we're helping reduce redundant work um, in a more verticalized way. We're, and and like, it's, yeah, I guess the regret is just that we should have done that sooner. Um, because folks were telling us that this is something important to them. Yeah, I mean, that's that's always a nice signal there, and especially when they're telling you, hey, yeah, we're already doing that DBT stuff, but no, we want to do it with you, and we're actually willing to pay you for it. Um, yep. You know, Now it's an amazing signal. Now you say, okay, sure, you're maybe a little bit late, but now you've, you've got that in the marketplace. You launched it on Wednesday, and it sounds like you've already gotten what you just said, a, a lot of positive feedback. Um, are some of your biggest customers now saying, Hey, let's let's talk about this. Show me a little bit more because I'm sure you're probably having doing the roadshow now, right? Of of exactly. demonstrating the power of what can be done. Um, what's what's next here? What's uh, what what's got you now excited that you've launched it? Aside from um, customer uptake, but yeah, I mean, what excites us really, honestly, is like learning from all their use cases, getting deep in their data models, and just understanding how crazy it is and how complex it is, and then continuing to iterate and improve the product. Um, because again, like. Um, Typical identity resolution was something that was really just users and their known or unknown events. That's basically it. Um, the kinds of things that we will see and customers will show us because they feel comfortable showing us is going to be vastly more complex. Um, and that's just going to teach us so much more about their data models and what problems we might want to solve for them in the future. Um, so I think like we just have really enjoyed this kind of open relationship with our customers where our offering is flexible enough that they bring us their hardest problems. We see those hardest problems and we help solve them. And then the product gets better and better over time. So I think like, like as we, we're starting to meet some of the largest companies now. And in the past, I didn't feel comfortable telling them we could solve their problems because it would be outlandish to think that you could solve such a complex problem. But now we have a lot more confidence in that. Um, and I think like just going into those rooms and having confidence that we can actually help here, we would not be making things up. That's inspiring. Um, and it makes me feel like we can really help folks. So. I think that's hopefully hopefully inspiring to the rest of the team as well. No, absolutely. I, I love the, the the progression of the company from reverse ETL to the realization of like your customers want this help. They need this help with the identity resolution, the 220 connectors. I mean, y'all have built a, a ton of amazing tech and uh, continue to be a, a fan and and look forward to seeing what, what High Touch does next. Um, really appreciate you taking the time today to sit down with me. I know you've got to be incredibly busy after, you know, one, closing the round, even though that was probably two months ago. And then, uh, you know, two, launching, uh, you know, an amazing product like Identity Resolution and now starting to have those conversations with uh, customers. So for you to take the time and sit down with me is incredible. I appreciate the conversation. I think it's been a, a lot of fun. I've learned a lot and I hope we get to do it again someday. Yeah, thanks, Tyler. Um, thank you for having me. And honestly, it's just like want to be um, just want to give a quick shout out to our engineering team, um, because for these kinds of things to happen all in parallel, it's because of how good they are um, and how willing they are 
to, again, tackle those complex problems rather than just greedy optimize like interim solutions. Um, and it's, it's a very weird thing to say because folks will say, oh, high touch is like shipping a new product every month. Um, and so they, people would assume that they're kind of just like light inch deep type products. But I, I really just feel like this is the first engineering team I've seen that will think about the long term and really condense that down into a very quick roadmap and ship that immediately. Like I, if any, if any of the audience folk uh, wants to like meet our CTO or co-founder um, and just like kind of like learn how he's built that kind of culture, um, just definitely encourage you all to reach out because we love talking about this kind of stuff. And we are hiring um, senior backend engineers if anyone's interested in joining. I mean, engineering culture is so important for, for a company. It's so important to have that great leadership in there. And it definitely sounds like you have it. That's exciting. And definitely encourage listeners to, to reach out, uh, talk to the CTO, and obviously they're hiring. So uh, have a look at their website. Where should they go to, to look at that at all your jobs that are available? Yeah, it's just hightouch.com slash careers. Easy enough. Well, Kashish, I appreciate it very much. Um, look forward to possibly doing this again someday. Yeah. Thanks, Tyler. See you soon. Got it. Cool. I will uh, stop recording here. Uh, unless there is anything else we can, because we can always splice it up. If there's anything that we missed or anything else that you want to talk about, um, we can dive into it. Uh, if you think you, if we think we missed something, there's something like, cause sometimes I know like in the middle of a conversation, like in the beginning, we'll prep for something. You'll say, okay, I really want to talk about this, but then in the conversation, yeah. we forget about it. No, um, I think we're good. But, okay, cool. Then I will stop the recording here and we will get this. I'll get this into my producers today so we can have it ready next week. I will record the intro. Cool. And then I told your marketing folks that I'll share the video and everything else. And y'all can feel, you know, cut it up and do what you want with it. And, Hopefully okay. we'll all get some good value out of it. Yeah, fantastic. That sounds great. All right, I'm going to hit stop. Don't close your tab or anything like that. We have to make sure everything uploads.